If you have a Bible with you, please open it to the book of Romans. We'll be continuing our study uh, and reading throughout that book, uh, beginning in verse 16 of that first chapter here in just a moment. If you need to borrow a Bible, you can find one in the pew in front of you, and the first chapter of Romans can be found on page 939 of that Bible. Famously writing about the passage that is before us today, Martin Luther said this. Nevertheless, in spite of the ardor of my heart, I was hindered by the unique word in the first chapter of Romans, the righteousness of God is revealed in it. I hated the word righteousness of God because in accordance with the usage and the custom of the doctors, I'd been taught to understand it philosophically as meaning, as they put it, the formal or active righteousness according to which God is righteous and punishes sinners and the unjust. As a monk, I led an irreproachable life. Nevertheless, I felt that I was a sinner before God. My conscience was restless, and I could not depend on God being propitiated by my satisfactions. Not only did I not love, but I actually hated the righteous God who punishes sinners. Thus, a furious battle raged within my perplexed conscience. But meanwhile, I was knocking at the door of this particular Pauline passage, earnestly seeking to know the mind of the great apostle. Day and night, I tried to meditate upon the significance of these words. The righteousness of God is revealed in it, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Then finally, God had mercy on me, and I began to understand that the righteousness of God is a gift of God by which a righteous man lives, namely faith. And that sentence, the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel, is passive indicating that the merciful God justifies us by faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now I felt as though I had been reborn altogether and had entered paradise. In the same moment, the face of the whole of Scripture became apparent to me. My mind ran through the Scriptures as far as I was able to recollect them, seeking analogies and other phrases such as the work of God by which he makes us strong, the wisdom of God by which he makes us wise, the strength of God, the salvation of God, the glory of God, just as intensely as I had hated the expression, the righteousness of God, I now lovingly praised this most pleasant word. This passage from Paul became to me the very gate to paradise. Luther, in this one passage, reveals the theological heart of the Reformation. Now, many things played a role in the in the Reformation, the selling of indulgences and the 95 Theses and ultimately the difficulty that Luther had with the authority of the church. But the most long-lasting and I would say likely most important aspect of the Reformation was the recapturing of justification by faith. The idea that God gives to us righteousness. He declares us righteous through no work of our own. In the end, Luther understood that we can never make ourselves right before God. No matter how hard he tried, and trust me, he tried harder than just about anyone might have ever tried, he could not expunge sin from his life. Yet, somehow, here, of all the passages in Scripture, the light went off. 
Suddenly he came to a realization that completely changed him. He, he had heard the righteousness of God and thought only of the punishing, punitive righteousness of God. But now he came to know the gift of the righteousness of God. This thought that this is a gift is not Luther's first and foremost. It is Augustine's, and it is those before him. It was one that fell on dark times. Luther, in restating it, got it to flourish, and it now is on parade throughout almost every evangelical preaching of the gospel. However, I think that we would do well to dwell on that little phrase this morning, for while I will admit I'm loath to disagree with Luther, and I'm loath even more to disagree with Augustine, I think that it would do well for us to do exactly what Luther did and to dwell for a while on this term. Because not only is it the backbone of really the Protestant Reformation, but forms the major theme in Paul's letter. What is righteousness? What is God's righteousness? What is our righteousness? As we talked about several weeks ago, this is the impetus of the letter. It is the heart and soul of the letter. And as Tom Schreiner noted in his commentary, defining the righteousness of God is both crucial and intensely controversial. And any misunderstandings that we might have about it may perhaps lead to errors down the road. So while we will take next week and look at verses 16 and 17 in context, today I want to focus in more closely just on that one phrase, the righteousness of God. It is found most clearly and most famously in the passage before us in Romans 1, 16 through 17. If you would read those two verses with me. There Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is the word of our God. As we think through this phrase, the righteousness of God, I want to pursue it through basically asking four questions. The first one is this, what makes the righteousness of God difficult to understand? Before we can kind of get through the difficulty, we've got to address what makes it difficult. And the first problem is that we don't really think of it as being terribly difficult. Most of us probably feel as though we've got a pretty good handle on what righteousness is. When we talk about our righteousness, it's us doing what is right. That there is a right thing to do and a wrong thing to do, and you are righteous if you continually do the right things. Most of us probably, without thinking of it, have agreed with Luther when he says that this is a righteousness that has been given to us. And specifically, what Paul is talking about here in verse 17 is that free gift. But there are questions that immediately follow that. The first one being, is it truly a gift? Or is this speaking of an attribute of God? That is, should we read it as the righteousness which God gives to us? Or the righteousness which belongs to God? The context isn't terribly clear. If it is meant as a gift, is the term simply meaning that he declares us to be righteous? Sort of like a judge would declare somebody to be not guilty or acquitted of all charges. Is it simply a declaration? Or rather, does it infuse righteousness into us? Is the gift a gift literally of righteousness in us? So that God not only calls us righteous, but he makes us righteous. It includes what we might call sanctification or 
that he is transforming us to be righteous. More than that, if it's not a gift, and it's actually an attribute of God, is the term only about salvation? Or does it actually, against Luther's wishes, include a sense of judgment? Luther rejected all forms of judgment in here, even as you just read. that It was, it was clearly just an, an all-out gift that God gives to us, but does Romans support that? Does the Bible support that? Furthermore, because Paul bases so much of what he says on the Old Testament, what does the Old Testament say about the righteousness of God? Does the Old Testament use the righteousness of God as a picture of a gift? Or does it talk about it differently? Does it refer mostly to God's holiness and judgment? Or even more, oddly, does it really just mean shorthand for Paul that God is always going to be faithful to his covenants? Which more than a few theologians say today, that the term really just means that God is always faithful to his word and specifically to his covenants. The problem is furthered by historical factors. How did Jewish people understand it through the ages? How do people in Paul's day understand it? Would Jews in Jerusalem have understood how Paul was using the term? Did the Romans and the Roman Christians understand how Paul was using the term? All of this is actually heightened by the fact that this word is connected to several other terms that we don't normally connect with righteousness. English is actually a huge problem. So, We can think about righteousness, which most of us think about as a personal righteousness. Like I said, if I am a righteous man, then it just means that I go out and I do what is right. It's a very personal thing. I think of justice, for instance, as a wholly separate issue. Justice isn't so much personal as it is public. Is justice done in this case? Will the victims see justice? That is almost all wrapped up in courtroom pictures. But then we can talk about justification, which has overlap with justice and overlap with righteousness, but is distinct. When we talk about justification theologically, that has a lot of overlap maybe with righteousness. But when we use justification in normal speech, we just mean we're defending ourselves. Dad, why did you eat all the cookies? Because I'm dad. It's not great justification, but it is my justification. I am dad, so I get to eat cookies. The problem is, in English, all these words carry different domains. They they kind of work in different areas of our lives, but in Greek, they're all incredibly closely related. Now, we can see how justice and justification might be related because they both begin with the word just. In Greek, they all begin with the same letters. In Greek, they're all connected to actually the same root word. To give you an example of this, turn over to chapter 3. In chapter 3, verse 26, regardless of what the context of this is, Paul says this, it was to show his righteousness, that is God's righteousness, it was to show God's righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, in the Greek, it reads much more smoothly because Both righteousness, just, and justifier all sound almost identical to one another. Now, they're clearly different endings, and you can tell that the words are actually different, but it would sound more like this. It is to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be the righteous one and the one who makes righteous the one who has faith in Jesus. That's really clunky, so we don't do that. Just and justifier sounds much better, but then what do we use? What kind of just word do we use for righteousness? 
Because in English, they all carry different connotations. They all work differently. In Greek, they seem to all be kind of pushed together and they work together to mean the same thing. Furthermore, the way that Paul uses this word might be different than the way others do. For instance, James, who is often pinned against Paul as speaking of the idea of justification by faith differently, is likely simply using the word justification differently than Paul did. So the the concept is really difficult to pin down. When Schreiner says that it's intensely controversial, he means it. Let's go on then to question number two. What ideas might the righteousness of God include? If we're going to try and wrestle with this, what things should probably be packed into it here? I want to mention five things. First, it must be clearly related to salvation. Luther was right. It has to be related to salvation. Notice the way in which the words work here in verses 16 going into verse 17. I am not ashamed of the gospel. And then he tells you why he's not ashamed of the gospel. What is it that upholds his pride in the gospel, if we're going to call it that? Because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Well, why is it the power of God for salvation? What is it that holds it up? What is it that grounds it? What is it that makes it the power of God for salvation? He says in verse 17, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed. So whatever the righteousness of God means here, it supports our salvation. It is the very thing that holds up our salvation. It is the very thing that gives the gospel the power of God for salvation. So it must clearly be related to salvation. Secondly, the term has to have some sort of relationship to faith. Again, directly after our phrase, the righteousness of God is revealed, Paul says, from faith for faith. Now that particular little statement is again incredibly difficult to unpack, and we're not going to do it today, but at least something of the righteousness of God has to be connected to faith. Because after all, this righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, or from faith for faith, or some sort of working of words that we can put together, but faith is a clear component of it. Third, the term must somehow relate to our doing what is right. If it's an attribute of God, and we are to be righteous like God is righteous, it must be an attribute of us as well. It must be related somehow to our doing what is right. If chapter 6 of the book of Romans has any bearing on this, then it's clear that whatever the righteousness of God is is something that we ought to mirror in our own lives as we seek to be righteous. Fourth, I think that it must be related as an attribute of God. And therefore, it must be related to the concept of judgment. Here I differ with Luther and Augustine and many others. I think this not only from the Old Testament, but I think this from the book of Romans itself. I I can't really get on board with this being a gift of God that he gives over. He says, In it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. In verse 18, he's going to say, The wrath of God is revealed. That wrath is not just something that God hands out as a gift, but it is also something that is part and parcel of who he is. It is an attribute of his. So while we could possibly conceive of it as gift, I think that there's also a hint of the fact that it is an attribute of God. But much more importantly, again, we should shift over to chapter 3. In chapter 3, verses 21 through 26, is ripe with the language of righteousness. 
So packed are these verses with the language of righteousness that we are right to read through them and think, man, this seems like he's, he's really just talking about righteousness over and over and over again here. And it makes us think back to 116 and 17. There's almost no way the two aren't related. And notice what he says in verse 25. Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Now again, we're not going to talk today about what propitiation means. We're not going to talk about whether it means to extinguish the wrath of God or it's an atoning sacrifice. But what is clear, no matter who translates that and how they translate it, is that the idea of sacrifice is inherent in there. An idea of sacrifice comes with it as an idea of punishment, an idea of judgment. There is sin and there is judgment for it. Now notice what Paul says next. He put him forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. It is an attribute of God. Yes, you can take it differently. You can say, well, in verse 17, it is a gift of God, like it is in chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 17, it talks about the righteousness of God. Not the righteousness of God. It talks about the righteousness as a gift. But I think that it, it is likely also an attribute of God here. And that brings me to the last bit that must be included in this. If we are to connect it as an attribute to God, we need to understand that it has to be a characteristic or an, an attribute of God himself, and it can't be a norm or a standard that God reaches to. This is a little bit tough to understand, and I hope that I can make it clear. Right doing is not a list of things that are good that God does. It's not as though there is a, a formal list somewhere of the things in which are good to do, and God says, okay, I will do those things. So when my wife comes home with a carload full of groceries, our kids know that they need to go out and help. And that is the right thing to do. But let me be very clear. That is the right thing to do, not because my kids do it. It is the right thing to do whether or not my kids do it. It is not right because they do it. The standard is not in them. The standard is held outside of them. It is right because my wife and I tell them that it's right to do it. The standard is found outside of them. God doesn't work like that. If it is an attribute of God, it's not a standard or norm outside of him. God isn't righteous because he does righteous things. Things are righteous because God does them. That's a wholly different ballgame. The righteousness of God is found in what he does. Whatever God does is righteous because God is the definition of righteousness. It is not outside of him. It is built into the very being of God. So then, on to question number three. What is a helpful way to understand the righteousness of God? I want to be very clear. I'm saying a helpful way to understand I am in no way, shape, or form going to define this ultimately for you. There are thousands of pages written in the past year alone on the righteousness of God, and it is quite beyond me to be the one man in all of the universe who's going to tell you emphatically what it means. So I humbly offer you simply a helpful way to understand it. And I think a helpful way to understand it is this. God's righteousness is an attribute of the unique God whereby he shows himself to be a kind judge. The righteousness of God is an attribute of the unique God whereby he shows himself a kind judge. And I want to look at each of the major parts of that. 
Why judge? Why does it talk about him as a judge? Why not talk about him as somebody who does what is right? That's pretty simple, because almost all righteousness language includes a sense of justice, and even a sense of justification are terms that are used in courts. It's court language in the Old Testament. It's court language in the New Testament. And I don't mean like royal courts. I mean like judgment courts. And so God is himself standing as a judge. And while I think that our doing right and God's right actions are seen in a somewhat personal light, I believe that the righteousness of God eventually has to highlight God's mercy in judgment. Righteousness language itself implies judging. So it shows him as a kind judge. But that leads to the second part of this. Why use the word kind? Isn't it enough simply to say that God is a judge? Why not talk about him being a good judge? Why not talk about him being an upstanding judge? Why not talk about him being a judge that doesn't pervert justice? Why a kind judge? Well, because Luther was right, at least in the general flow of things. As we talked about, it's clear that in Romans 5.17, our righteousness is indeed a gift of grace. And as such, that giving of us righteousness and justification is at the very heart of the gospel. But I think Luther got two things wrong. Knowing that his knowledge of the Bible is vastly superior to mine, I think that he seems to be led astray by these doctors that he talks about in insisting that the righteousness of God implied and almost only implied God's punishment of sinners and that alone. When he heard the term righteousness of God, all he thought about was God as a judge judging sinners in wrath and in anger. If that were true, he has to be right to reject it here. Because the wrath of God would leave absolutely no room for salvation. And this would always, without any shadow of a doubt, leave us hating the righteousness of God just as much as he did. Because it would only be there to condemn us. Here I think Luther is wrong first, and that it is not primarily a gift, it is an attribute of God. But secondly, he is wrong to think that the righteousness of God is actually centered and formed upon God's wrathful judgment of human beings. Attributing righteousness to God doesn't bring about wrath most often in Scripture. If you go back and you hear where the Old Testament, specifically the Old Testament, talks about God being righteous, do you know what it's actually attached to more often than not? And not like a little bit more often, like way more often. Salvation. It's not actually attached to judgment. And it's clear that it's God's righteousness. Listen to David here in Psalm 145, beginning in verse 4. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. Now notice, those words are not all synonymous, but each of those pairs at least is closely related together. They're of the same quality. He talks about works and mighty acts, and he pairs them together. He talks about majesty and wondrous works, and he pairs them together. He talks about awesome deeds and greatness, and he pairs them together. And then he says this, they shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. 
for David, the righteousness of God was not something to condemn him, but it was something of an abundant goodness. He saw in it riches and treasure of God's good kindness. He goes on to say in verse 17 of that, the Lord is righteous in his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He hears their cry and saves them. The righteousness of God, rather than leaving David in fear that he is going to be condemned, is a source of goodness, of comfort, and hope that he will eventually be delivered. Far from being an attribute that David would hate in condemnation, the righteousness of God is an attribute of God himself that David sees as a lovely and a beautiful thing. Why? Why do so many of us see it differently than the way David does? I don't know that I can answer that. I can answer why it is a lovely and a beautiful thing. Because it is, indeed, an attribute of God. However God acts is right. That's what it means for righteousness to be attached to God and his very being. However God acts is right, for he is the standard And he always acts in accordance with his nature. So the question is, what is his nature? If God always acts in ways that are right, and he always acts in ways that are according to his nature, what is his nature? Moses, after the golden calf incident, pleads for God's mercy over Israel. God relinquishes, destroying all of Israel. Moses says, I would like to see your glory. I'm sure he said it as kindly as he could. It was quite the request. God says, well, you could, you would die, so I'll meet you halfway. I'll put you in the rock, and I will pass by, and I will shield you from most of it, but I'll let you catch a glimpse of it. And as he's going by, God says this. This is from Exodus 34. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. God tells Moses who he is. He says, I am compassionate, I am merciful, and I am filled with loving kindness, and he says it first. And it could have easily been the other way. could have easily said, I am a God who will not let you get away with anything. I am a God who will hold your feet to the fire. I am a God who will bring the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. But I'm compassionate. But I'm merciful. That does not read the same way. God's compassion and his mercy and his love come first. We never read in Scripture, God is wrath. But John is very quick to say, no, God is love. His compassion and his mercy is how he continually shows himself to his people. He is first merciful, long-suffering, kind, patient, and loving, and only after the full, continued, and persistent rejection of that love does he ever show himself wrathful. In his righteousness 
as an attribute of who he is. He does what is right and according to his nature and always acts in kindness to his creation. The righteousness of God, because it's not just something that God does, but an attribute, an integral part of who he is, reflects his very character and being. It is God who in his mercy did not take Adam and Eve's life the moment that they sinned. It is God who in his mercy allowed them to have a son. It is God who in his mercy saved a remnant through the flood. It is God who in his mercy visited Abraham and said, I will make you a blessing to the nations. And all of the nations will find blessing in you. God is rich with mercy. He is rich in love and in kindness to his people. We could go on throughout the entirety of the Old Testament, showing his patience, showing his way of dealing with sin slowly and carefully, showing his loving kindness for all of his servants, delivering again and again and again when his people are ripe with sin and reject him and reject him and reject him. To read the Old Testament and to only see a God of wrath and anger is to completely and utterly misread the text. David clearly didn't read it that way. God's righteousness is an attribute of the unique God whereby he shows himself a kind judge. The question then I think would turn to why say the word unique? Isn't it enough to simply talk about God? Why not just say God? We all know that God is one. We all know that there is none like him. The reason why I want to say unique in there is because his righteousness often sets him off against the idols that surround him. Listen to the words of Isaiah 45, beginning in verse 21. The Lord there says, Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. He's talking about the idols. He wants all the idols to come waddling on together. You know, they're brick. They can't walk very well. They don't really have knees that work, and so they're going to waddle on together. They're going to huddle up. And he says, let them kind of talk with one another and let them figure out what's going on, and then let them answer, answer some questions for me. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me. A righteous God and a Savior. There is none beside me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is no other. By myself I have sworn From my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me, our righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him. The opening verse makes it clear. The saving power belongs to God alone. Idols cannot save you. Weak and worthless gods, mute and deaf and dumb, they cannot save you. They cannot do what God does. He is simply alone. So therefore, if the earth is to turn and find salvation, they must turn to him. Because the idols are not righteous to save. He alone is God. There is no other. And his righteousness, the basic fact that as the judge of all the earth, he alone has the right to pardon. He alone has the right to condemn. Means that he alone is the one to turn to for salvation. Notice that last line, which is so wonderful. 
To him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him. I think of Martin Luther when I think of that. Luther, who thought that the righteousness of God was nothing but punishment, nothing but judgment, and he was incensed against him. And God's going to say, you didn't really know me. I have no doubt that Martin knew him later, but here you didn't really know me. My righteousness is not wrath and anger and frustration. My righteousness is first and foremost salvation and mercy and grace. You were incensed against me. Let you be ashamed that you didn't know me. What makes God right to judge? He alone is God. What makes God right to pardon? He alone is God. What makes God right to act in this manner or in that manner? He alone is God. This is not just an issue for the Old Testament. It's not just an issue for Isaiah. This idea comes up throughout the book of Romans. In Romans 3, he talks about whether God is able to judge the world. In Romans 8, he has the same kind of issue, most prominently in Romans 9. When he talks about the election and God saying, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, Paul's interlocutor says, well, well, how am I supposed to stand up against the will of God? Why does he judge me? And Paul says simply, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what does molded say to the molder? Why have you made me like this? The righteousness of God is seen in the fact that he alone is unique. He alone can pardon. He alone can condemn God's righteousness is an attribute of the unique God whereby he shows himself a kind judge. That leads us finally to the fourth question. How is this connected to the gospel? How is it related to our salvation and our faith? I think maybe the best way to see this is negatively as you go on to verse 18. He talks about the wrath of God being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. And then two times he says our unrighteousness and the unrighteousness of men. The ESV is at least... When it discriminates, it at least discriminates in both cases. So it only says brothers, and here it's only men who stand under the unrighteousness of God. You should understand that women are included there. All ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What do they do? They don't see God as unique. They know that there is a creator in heaven. They know that he is alone in power and might and majesty, and yet they make gods out of common things. They make God into something that is just like everything else. He is not alone. He is not one of a kind, but he is just like everything else. He's a snake. He's a serpent. He's a cow. He's some sort of animal. He's some sort of brick structure. He's something that we can manipulate, that we can put our hands on. But our salvation and our faith treats God differently. We see him as unique, alone, as though there is no one else in his category. Trusting him, not for what we can make him into, not for what we want him to be, but for what he says he is. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness because God spoke to him and he said, you can do what you said. You promised me a son, you'll give me a son. You promised me as many as the stars of the sky, I have no doubt that you will come through on that. I have no doubt when I raise the blade that if you allowed me to, you would raise my son back up from the dead. He ultimately believed that this God was alone and unique. And ultimately, this uniqueness, this oneness of God, this very isolated form of God where he is one of a kind, 
that uniqueness is incarnated in Jesus. Listen to Isaiah 45, 23 again. This passage of scripture in Isaiah 45, which is replete with references to, I am alone God. There is no other God besides me. There Isaiah says this, and the Lord says through Isaiah, by myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, and every tongue shall swear allegiance. Does that sound familiar? That's Philippians 2. That is, at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth will bow, and every tongue confess that he is the Lord, the, the God who is God alone, the God who has no other. That's Jesus. The one Abraham believed is the one who has now come in the flesh and died for us and been resurrected for our justification. Therefore, Paul says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Because in coming to Jesus, you come to the one who has the right to pardon you. You come to the only one who has the right to condemn you. And you come to the only one who has the power to bring you out of death. The gospel, as we heard in verse 3 of the opening chapter of Romans, and we heard in verse 5, is primarily about Jesus and primarily for the glory of Jesus. That is because in Jesus we get the perfect manifestation and picture of the glory and the righteousness of God. That is made most clear on the cross. It is made most clear in the person of Jesus laying down his life. That nature and glory are pointed and focused at our salvation. God's nature is to be kind and to love and to save. And that is precisely what Jesus Christ has come to do. But make no doubt it is also related to judgment. Not only the judgment of sins in Jesus Christ, but the fact that God has shown himself a judge, a true judge, in that wicked deeds are not left unpunished. But he himself has shown himself also a kind judge and that he takes on that punishment himself. For those then who refuse such kindness, who reject the grace and the love of God in Christ, they are rejecting the mercy that God provides and are left only with his judgment. They do not want the salvation that God provides, so they themselves will suffer the wrath that their sins provide. Hebrews 2, verse 3 asks a very simple question. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Friends, our goal in working through things like this is not to make you better thinkers or more astute theologians. That's fine in and of itself, but that's not why we do this. It's not why we took the time to do this today. The reason why we want you to be more biblical in thought, we want you to think through what Scripture says, is that you would have the ability to see rightly who God is and praise the goodness of what he is to his people. To see his kindness and mercy as utmost worthy of your praise. To know him better and to love him more completely. That in all things, the splendor and the glory of Christ and the work that he has done on our behalf might be the all-consuming passion of our lives. So let us rejoice in the kindness of God's judgment seen in our Lord Jesus Christ. After all, as we are about to sing, Christ has risen from the grave and he has defeated death and hell. He has kindly judged our sins in his body on the tree.
For our God is a God of righteousness and thus deserves all the love of our heart, mind, body, and soul. Let us pray. Father, may this time help us to see your righteousness rightly. I pray that we might see, even in your judgments, your kindness and mercy. What grace you have given us in Jesus Christ. As the very image of God takes on the wrath of God to complete the righteousness of God, you are indeed all in all. Such mercy and grace. May these things forever be imprinted on your people. Let now our voices sing with passion your praises and your glory. Amen.